There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Susan Davis is our guest this week. She's the chairwoman of Susan Davis International, a global communications firm headquartered in Washington, D.C. Throughout four decades, she has personally represented leaders of more than a dozen countries on issues ranging from economic crisis to nation building and trade expansion. She's provided public relations counsel to the Vatican for the papal visit to Ireland and counseled members of Congress, non-governmental organizations, multinational C-suite executives, and senior leaders of U.S. government agencies. Susan is a founding board member of the National Women's Forum and the first international president of International Women's Forum. A lifelong advocate for democracy building and leadership development for women, Susan is board chair emeritus of Vital Voices Global Partnership, the preeminent NGO empowering emerging women leaders in 125 countries. Susan Davis, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. It's lovely to be here. You have such wonderful and interesting guests that I'm honored that you asked me to join you. No, we're honored to have you. I know how busy you are, so thank you very much for your time. Susan, you're involved in so many other important causes that I take up another 10 minutes just to share them with the introduction. I promise we'll get to some of them during the course of our conversation. But first, let's start with what journalists call an edge of the news topic and what's going on in Israel and the Gaza Strip. You have very personal connections with that region because you've mentored women there and have longstanding friendships. How did you get connected to them and what are you hearing, if anything, from them right now? You know, um, well, first of all, um, Chris, I actually was part of a small group of women after the Camp David Accords where, you know, peace was agreed upon between Israel and Egypt. Um, I was with a small group of women. We went into Israel and we brought the first Israeli women from Israel into Egypt. And we then we turned around and brought the first Egyptian women into Israel. It was an extraordinary um, experience. And so, of course, I have wonderful relationships since, since that time, um, many decades ago now. Um, and then through my um, involvement with Vital Voices Global Partnership, I met many women from Palestine, women who live in Gaza, uh, women from Israel, etc., who I've kept in close contact with all this time and still to this very day. And being so deeply involved in these regions of conflict, do you stay glued to the television news sources 24-7, or do you have to limit and sort of ration your news intake? Oh, I think I'm like most everybody. You know, when it first happens, I jumped right in and I couldn't stop watching, listening, reading, etc. But after about 48 hours of this, and the same was true when Russia invaded Ukraine, I mean, you know, it's just overload, you know, sensory overload. You can't really... T- take it. Um, And you don't want to see all of the horrible photos and hear the sad, sad stories. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where now I try to get my news from, actually, I get it from from the internet more than anywhere else right now. I I allow myself 30 minutes sometime during the day to catch up on what's happening um, in Israel and Gaza. But, you know, it's just, it's just, it's tough. Everybody, I'm sure, feels that way. No, absolutely. And maybe as a follow-up to that, 
what do you do or, or can you do to cope with the worries that you have for your friends in those regions? Um, you know, I just reach out and talk to them. You know, um, the minute um, within just a few minutes of learning what had happened um, on October 7th, I um, immediately reached out to a woman that I've been mentoring for years um, in Israel to find out how she was, whether she was safe, what was happening with her family. And of course, sadly, um, her son had just been recalled and he was on his way to the front where, where he is now, as a matter of fact. And she was devastated with what had happened and also what was going to happen. Um, so, you know, in those situations, and the same is true with what's happened in Ukraine or in any other part of the world, the most important thing you can do is just listen. Listen to people and just, you know, be as, uh, you know, as empath empathetic as you possibly can be. And if they need things, you try to provide them for them. You know, I remember when, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the first request I got, and probably a lot of people got this who had friends there, was for drones. You know, could you help us get drones, right? <laughs> so it's, you know, it's just, it's small things that you can do for people um, because, you know, in the immediate sea of the crisis, there's not very much you can do. I mean, the best thing you can do is be there for them. Our conversations and next steps forward focus on well-being, resili resiliency, and leadership through adversity. In your experience, what gives people and especially women, the strength, the resilience to find their way through a conflict such as we've seen in Ukraine and we're seeing now in Gaza and Israel? Oh, so women have always been the pillar of strength for conflicts, you know, from the beginning of time. So there's there's nothing new, you know. I think women, first of all, women don't think of themselves first. You know, of course, they think about their children, their family, you know, um, and their community. Um, so... There, that is a normal way for women to be, um, and women are used to dealing with crisis in their family, you know, on a, on a regular basis. So, you know, there's a, an in, a built-in resilience um, that women have, and it just, you know, just sort of comes to the fore in, in, in a really serious crisis situation. Um, so, uh, you know, the bend, bend but not break kind of mantra is sort of what you what you see and you know what I certainly have experienced all over the world as I see women. It doesn't matter what country they're in. It doesn't matter what the crisis is. Um, they just seem to be able to rise above it, at least in the moment. doesn't mean that people don't break at some point along the line, but, you know, in, in the crisis and at the time when it counts the most, women just make it happen. In your opinion, what's going to happen to the women and girls in Ukraine and the Gaza Strip, God willing, these conflicts end? Yeah. Oh, the same thing that happens after conflict um, everywhere, you know, there needs to be um, peace, um, but they're at the same time, I mean, and, and actually what people are undergoing right now is just tremendous gender-based violence. Um, and, you know, there's such a huge need for um of human of humanitarian assistance, et cetera. But what I what you see, and the best example I can give you of this, although there are great examples in in Africa as well, is um, in Northern Ireland, where the without the women, without the women's coalition, there would never be a, a Good Friday Agreement. Um, the women actually came in and brought the men together, brought the parties together, and helped forge that peace agreement. 
Um, and the same, it's the same hopefully will be true in these other countries where women will be part of the peace process because in places where they are, there's much more lasting peace. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that that will, you know, will be the case. And then I think women's role also needs to be in reconciliation and dialogue, especially. Um, and, and hopefully, again, you know, it's the Palestinian-Israeli situation is the perfect example of it. I and mean, there was so much of that, Chris, that was going on. There was so much going on of especially women forging great relationships across their cultures and working together on girls' education and working together on community issues and working together on health care issues, et cetera. And, you know, and now they're, they're just torn apart um, by what's happened. What region most concerns you as the most likely one to expand into a greater conflict? Is it Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, China, Taiwan, somewhere else? Well, you know, I certainly didn't expect, I don't think most people expected what would happen, you know, in, in, in Israel on October 7th. So, I mean, I think this one has the bigger chance of growing and becoming far worse than what it is now, that's even possible from what you see every day. Um, so yeah, I would say I would say this one now, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no, um, I, I can't prophesize, that's for sure. Um, but this one has just so many extra possibilities, um, you know, terrorists and so many other countries who would love to get into the mix, as we all know. So I would say that this is, this is probably it. Of, um, and hopefully, hopefully it can be stopped before it turns into something much worse. I agree. We were talking about your work as a mentor. What inspired you to become a mentor for other women? You know, um, I think that was just inbred. I mean, I was mentored as a young person from the beginning, I think, and um, I just benefited so much of from other wiser people helping me along my way so it wasn't it wasn't a choice that I made that was like oh I'm going to be a mentor now it just happened you know it's like pay it forward right um and I I learned that in my family I learned that in my community and so it's just it's just something I do you know natural leaders just naturally step up I think I think most people just naturally step up I think they do you know they might, not, more, they might not all be recognized for it, but I think most people do. You know, as I look at these conflicts, I can't help but think about what's going on here in the United States. Americans aren't being subjected to a military conflict, but so many are feeling the stress of soaring costs, they're breaking the household budgets, they're worried about losing their jobs, they're at odds with each other over political differences. How should we view our stresses compared to those of other people around the world? You know, is it a case of kind of lucky stars and quick complaining, or do we have real cause to worry and feel sorry for ourselves? Oh, I'm 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 not a proponent of feeling sorry for yourself. So that's not a good question to ask me because I'd say get over it, you know, move on. Um, you know, the I'm I'm one of those the glasses always half full, um, and and I really not only feel sorry for people who see the world as the glass is half empty or, you know, even even less than that. But if I get a chance to try to change their mind, I'm going to do that. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, if, if you just take a look 
just take one day of looking at what's going on in Gaza and Israel and say we're worse off? I don't think so. You know, we're we're living in a country where we have freedom and we're living in a country where we're secure, maybe not 100%, but certainly more so than they are. And we know where our food is coming from and our water. I mean, I just think we're lucky. I think we're lucky. Couldn't agree with you more. You've also worked with women in our military. Is there a particular group of women or traits women who are most resilient? And if so, what makes them that way? You know, I think I just go back to what I said before about resiliency. I think women are just naturally resilient because they have to be um, in terms of their role in the world and their their gender. Um, I'm so very impressed at the resiliency of the military women that um, I've had the privilege of meeting and getting to know over the years, though, um, because they've had to fight so hard to be able to be in a position to defend their country, you know, I mean, to me that just sounds so wrong, you know, it's, it's coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking like, what is wrong with that picture, um, but that's the way it was and is still, unfortunately, um, although it's so much better today than it was, but you know, I mean, women have been serving in this country since the Revolutionary War, they, you know, they were their husbands went down and they put on their clothes and they picked up the musket and off, off they went, you know. So um, we should be grateful for the tremendous contributions that women have made in the military and are continuing to make now. Um, but it's been a hard and long row um, for them. And um, the history is, is absolutely amazing. And, and their resilience, um, you know, to just fight against the odds, but have that mission. And I think that's, that's really where it is in terms of resilience, too, is, you know, if you're focused on a mission, you know where you're going. Um, you're, you're just going to put up with anything in order to get there. You're going from A to B and you'll get there wherever you have to. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, looking at your career, Susan, you're drawn to regions of conflict. Why do you think that is, and what have you learned about the world and about yourself from those experiences? Well, that's a really good question, Chris. I don't know that I'm so drawn to regions of conflict as much as I seem to be a magnet for women who are in the regions of conflict. Um, but you know, if, if you have any amount of empathy, once you see how tough life is for someone, and it might not necessarily be war, um, but it could be serious gender-based violence, or it could be lack of education for girls, or, you know, I'm, what I'm drawn to is trying to help women um, get to the position they should be in their life, in their community, um, in the world, you know, and I've always been drawn to that. Um, and I will be, you know, for the rest of my life, um, because there's so much work to be done. But in the process of me trying to do what little I can do for them, oh my gosh, what I have learned from so many incredible women and, and seen, you know, not just resilience, but courage and fearlessness, even if they had the fear inside, just fearlessness um, to get to where they wanted to go um, despite the odds, you know, and the person that just immediately jumps to mind is um, Kakenya Nataya, who is um, from Kenya, Maasai tribe, 
she in her in her community um, women had to undergo um, female circumcision at, you know in uh, age 12 13 and she told her father she wouldn't do that and she would run away and bring um, you know ruin the reputation of the family um, unless he allowed her to finish her education and if he did she would undergo the FGM so she did and her father, his, her father kept his word, and her village put together the money and sent her to school. She went to Randolph-Macon School um, here in Virginia, and um, she got her master's degree, her PhD. She built a school back in her time. I mean, just amazing. But what she gave up in order, and at that young age, she knew you know, that her that she wanted to be educated, and she wanted to help educate other girls. Pretty, you know, it's pretty amazing. There's another story you have, an experience of an Afghan woman in, of all places, Santa Fe, New Mexico. What happened there, and where did it lead? Oh, yes. Um, I, you know, to be quite honest, it didn't occur to me that I would be involved in Afghanistan, and this is way before, um, you know, um, way before the Taliban came in this last time. But um, I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico to, to um, give a few speeches um, and I was staying at a friend's home, and there was this Afghan woman who was also staying at the home. And one night I came back, and I saw her packing up crayons and um, spices and other kinds of things. Um, and I, I just started a conversation with her um, and discovered that she had started had just started a school in Afghanistan on the site of, a, um, of what was the king's um, favorite boys school that had just you know gone into complete disrepair and I asked her you know how she started the school and she had the most amazing story um, she had come from Afghanistan gone to school in Massachusetts had a had a um, scholarship to Oxford personal things happened in her family and she couldn't continue that went back to Massachusetts and she was alone and she had a boy, a, a young boy, so she couldn't keep up her education, um, her PhD education. So she started a little um, sewing business and um, she became the first woman president of the Rotary, um, which is important in the story of her, her local Rotary. 9-11 um, happened, and she was, of course, the only Muslim in her community. She was petrified. She was horrified at what Muslims had done. She was petrified um, about herself and her son and not knowing how the community would respond. But the community responded with love and really wrapped their arms around her. And in exchange, she um, started making masks and gloves for people who were at ground zero. And ultimately, she made a carpet which hangs in the 9-11 um, museum. And through all of this, she ended up meeting some army guys who, after we went into Afghanistan, said, you know, you should go back and see how terrible it became for girls in Afghanistan. So she did, with their protection, and discovered the, the, the dire need for girls' education. And that's how she started the school. Um, so I said to her, well, what could, how could I help you? And, you know, she said, well, the girls don't get fed because I don't have money for that. So I said, oh, I'll help you with that. So that was what I thought I was going to do. And, you know, within about three months, I became the chairman of her board. <laughs> so 
that was a very long time ago. I think about 12 years now. Um, but I'm, it's just been a wonderful um, experience. And of course, we had a, over a thousand girls in our school um, the day the Taliban took over. And then they made all the schools close in, in the country. Then they reopened them. And on the day all the girls came back, within an hour of us opening the school, the Taliban issued an edict that any girl over the age of 12 had to go home and she could no longer be educated. So we had then half of the school, 500 girls in our school, and um, which was just devastating for the older girls. But we decided to open up the kindergarten um, just to see what would happen. And 200 families showed up with girls who wanted to still have their girls be educated, even though they could only go to 12th grade. So we're over 760 girls in our school again. So it's great. That's amazing. Yeah, Congratulations. That's fantastic. It is. So things changed very quickly in Afghanistan after President Biden abruptly ended the U.S. presence in that country. What has happened to women in that country since the Taliban assumed control, and what future do you see for those girls? Well, in my glasses half full um, mode, I would say someday those girls that were educating up to the age of 12 are going to be able to continue their education. I don't know what will happen, you know, to the girls. Uh, today, but I mean, it's really to the older girls today. Um, it's a very sad situation. I mean, you know, they everyone knows what it is. Girls, girls over the age of twelve, women have no rights, and I don't know that it's going to change in the short run. We keep hoping every day that it will, but right now, um, it doesn't. It doesn't look good. But we have to keep trying. So we're going to keep educating those girls, and we're going to keep doing it until we either are stopped um, or things change. Can you share a few of your most memorable experiences from your mentoring? Oh, my goodness. We'd have to do two podcasts or three. <laughs> I'm available. <laughs> Chris, um, let me share, you know, you know, a lot of mentoring is really personal to the person, you know, so I feel less comfortable, you know, telling everybody's stories. But I'll tell you some of the amazing women that I've worked with, gotten to know, um, who have so... Um, it enriched my life. One was Dr. Hawa Abdi, um, who was the first woman gynecologist in Somalia. And she she started health clinics and all, and then when the militants took over, um, she ended up with a, building a refugee camp that, that ultimately had 90,000 people in it. And then the militants came into the camp and held her hostage and held the nurses hostage, et cetera. And she not only talked them down, but she demanded an apology and she got it. You know, amazing, ama amazing woman, you know. Um, and then, you know, um, I told you about um, Kakenya. Um, there's another fabulous woman, um, um, Hafsa Abda from Nigeria, her dad was president and he was murdered, he was assassinated. And she took up the reins and still does, you know, and is trying to do her best to, you know, bring democracy and all the good parts of democracy um, um, to Nigeria. Um, and, you know, there are just fabulous women doing work um, that are, especially in India, who are trying to um, work with gender-based violence, which is 
you know, a really huge problem there, as it is all over the world. And one, Elsa de Silva has built this incredible um, digital network um, and a way for women to be connected to one another and to homes so that if anybody follows them or tries to um, hurt them in any way, they can just connect with each other and police are on it, et cetera. So, I mean, I could go on and on about all of these women, but, I mean, they're just truly... Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're people that you just have to admire and you feel like, I, mean, I don't, could I do this? Could I do that? I don't know. You know, I really don't know if I could. Um, but I can listen to them and, and connect the dots sometimes, which is very helpful to them. No, absolutely. We've been talking to Susan Davis, and we'll be right back after a short break. shows and can't get enough of us follow us on instagram at voice america talk radio and see what we're cooking up for you up from the ashes out of the grave sweet taste of freedom no longer your slave picture the heart-wrenching anguish a family endures when a child is abducted Human trafficking is a worldwide crisis that plagues our society. Voices Against Trafficking stands as a voice for those entrapped in the depths of despair. Broken Treasures, You Hold the Key is a musical collection that showcases the dedication of artists and celebrities who were determined to protect the world's children. There is a way for you to make a difference right now. Visit VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. The proceeds will go towards helping child victims. The power to liberate them rests in your hands. Cause I'm still alive. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron, author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed.
You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Susan Davis. She's the chairwoman of Susan Davis International, a global communications firm headquartered in Washington, D.C. Throughout four decades, she has personally represented leaders of more than a dozen countries on issues ranging from economic crisis to nation building and trade expansion. She has provided public relations counsel to the Vatican for papal visit to Ireland and counseled members of Congress, non-governmental organizations, multinational C-suite executives, and senior leaders of U.S. government agencies. Susan, we've been talking about so many current events in the state of the world today. I know the title of the show is Next Steps Forward, but let's take a step back. Where were you raised, and how did you become interested in international affairs? So I was raised in a small town in northern Wisconsin, and uh, a a town that was not exactly diverse. There were no people of color. There were no people of other cultures um, at all, except that... I grew up in a time where your heritage was very important to you. So if you were German or Polish or Irish or Swedish or, or whatever, your family sort of instilled in you, you know, um, that culture, that heritage. So you learn the songs and you learn, you know, the the about the food and the history and all that sort of thing. So, so that was, I mean, very much just sort of natural um, as, I, as I grew up. Then I went to um, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and then my life completely changed because there were many people of color, many people of um, other cultures. My uncle, um, actually my cousin, was the head of engineering foreign programs, so he had students at his home every single weekend and I was there for free food so I got to meet lots and lots of people um, and um, you know learned learned about cultures and life and all you know in ways that I probably never you know never would have um, so so I just sort of grew into it so college was your first exposure to it was got it uh-huh. and then what was your first trip you took outside the United States and what effect did it have on you oh well, I'll tell you two, actually, in different parts of the world. So, of course, the first trip I had was to Ireland. Um, and, you know, that was the, the beginning of many, many, many journeys there and, you know, basically feeling like it's my second home. The other trip might surprise you. Um, I was in my early 20s and I had got an opportunity to go to China with a White House delegation. Um, and... It was an amazing experience. It was at a time when China hadn't yet really opened up. They had all these friendship stores all over. You had, you know, a million minders, um, et cetera. We were told by the State Department that we couldn't talk about religion, politics, or sex at all. Um, and we had to be very careful about what we said. And, of course, the first thing that happened when we got on the bus was each one of us had a minder, and those are the three things they wanted to talk about, right? <laughs> so it was, it was just a real eye-opener, but, you know, it was still not, you know, the the society's not open, but it was definitely not open then. Um, but we, we, we were very much minded. We were taken to 
all kinds of places that they wanted us to see. I saw more children performing than probably any other time in my life. Um, but it was it was still um, an incredible experience. Um, and one of the things that I remember was that we had um, oh, there were there were traffic jams, but the traffic jams were these Mercedes um, bicycles and goats, you know, all on the same road. So you can tell that it was quite a long time ago, but it was it was an amazing experience. And it just, you know, from that, I've just had all kinds of opportunities um, for different things that I got involved with. Because I lived in Washington, D.C., I think I really had a chance to do so much more than I might have if I lived in another part of the country, because I got a chance to work with international organizations. I got a chance to be on boards of directors at really at a young age of democracy initiatives and um, of international um, outreach organizations. So, so it really was, it was both gradual, but seems sort of a natural progression. I'm, I'm laughing at the, the traffic jam you mentioned uh, from my wife on our honeymoon for part of it, we went to Egypt and Cairo and it was the exact same traffic jam. It was donkeys and cows and cars and yeah. it was pretty funny. So I can yeah. visualize that very clearly. Yeah. And was that trip to China when you first started to travel extensively internationally? It was, and you know, and then the trip that I mentioned, where we took the first woman from Israel and Egypt into the other countries, was another really big, um, memorable um, trip. But it, you know, I think, yes, I've been probably four decades of traveling internationally on a regular basis, and no, and, more, and the majority of it not for fun. And, and by that, I don't mean that I didn't have fun, but it was a it was a purposeful trip, and then I got to experience all the fun you know associated with that. And if you can, how many countries have you visited over the years? Oh my gosh, Chris, I have no idea. I'll have to count those up. I mean, it's it's quite a few. Look at the stamps in your passport. Right, but I've lost my passport a couple of times, so I don't know. That's, you know, I have to. I really have to think about it. Um, it's it's many. I won't venture a guess, but um, there's just so many more, so many more left. So. And if you want to, is there a favorite country or region you'd like to share? Oh, of course, it's Ireland. <laughs> I, I didn't have to ask that one, right? Of course it is. Yes. <laughs> I made four trips in the last eight weeks. So. so. All right, then. What's your second favorite besides the motherland? Oh. Um, Oh, I, you know, I, I have not a second necessarily, but I love Italy. I love, I love China. Um, I love Italy and I love Sweden. Great mix right there. Oh, and Panama. And so to that point, you know, what advice would you have for someone who's never traveled abroad? Oh, just follow your passion. Cause you know, I mean, it's, you should go someplace that really interests you. Um, and the best advice I could give anybody is learn about where you're going before you get there. You know, do do some homework so you're not constantly looking in your guidebook and you know not really experiencing um, wherever you happen to be. And the second thing I would say, and this has been my most favorite part of travel, is just go off the beaten road. You know, go places. You know, take the road that you don't know. Um, you don't know where it goes to. I do that in Ireland all the time. It's great fun. You have the wonderful experiences. One thing I've learned is if you can learn just a couple of phrases in their local language, that goes a long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. People love that. You know, then they think that you know. I actually represented um, the government of Egypt many years ago for quite a few years. And 
um, I had to deal with um, the president as well as um, cabinet officers. And I didn't know Arabic, so I started to take Arabic, but I learned enough Arabic so I could have enough of a conversation that they thought I knew a lot more than I did. So then they would switch to English to practice their English. <laughs> so it worked. Win-win. <laughs> Win-win, yes. You know, I think today's world, certainly in a post-9-11 era, and obviously with the conflicts going on today, fear keeps many people from traveling abroad. How much should fear guide us, and how much should we just use plain old common sense for our own safety? Oh, it's, it's like another one of those um, questions where I, I, I don't choose fear. I, n I never do, but I don't think you should be unnecessarily... Um, you know, she should be unnecessarily risky in terms of what you do. I mean, it, the world, don't go to Israel and Gaza today, right? But there are plenty of other parts of the world that you can you can travel to. I think you just have to be smart and observant and, you know, really pay attention to the cultures and, and the norms um, in, in any in any culture, in any country. But, you know, I, I just think too many Americans don't travel don't experience life outside of the U.S. How are we going to understand, you know, why we should support one part of the world, why we should do whatever we're going to do on the humanitarian side or the military side or whatever? How do you know how to make those good decisions if you've not traveled? And unfortunately, we have too many members of Congress who haven't traveled, you know, who really don't understand, you know, they, they get their they get their information by these codels after they've been elected, you know. I mean, I think it's something wrong with that system. We should have a better way of teaching everybody in this country multiple foreign languages and get kids traveling um, at a young age. Couldn't agree more. That'll be our new platform. That's it. So we mentioned in the intro all of your outside business activities. How did you become involved with Vital Voices, and how does it identify and develop emerging women leaders around the world? Um, oh, you know, Vital Voices was it was a germ of an idea um, after after Hillary Clinton, who was then first lady, went to China and gave her speech saying women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights, and she really electrified women from around the world with the with just those words. Um, then people wanted to meet. Um, her when she traveled. Women went to meet her when she traveled. And um, the Secretary of State then was Madeleine Albright. And they wanted to meet Madeleine when she traveled. So um, they set up this little program in the State Department. It was little. They had barely any budget called Vital Voices. And I actually got involved with it at the time because they, you know, it wasn't a partisan issue or anything. They, they brought women from all different um, backgrounds in to help with this because they would bring some women to the U.S. or they had a program um, in Northern Ireland, for example, that I went to, etc. So I got involved in this while it was still a government program. Um, and then um, when, when the Clinton administration was over, um, they wanted, they decided they were going to set it up as a NGO um, instead took it out of the State Department and um, created a board. And so then I went on the board. So that was a very long time ago. Um, so I've been involved in, ever since. And for eight years was the chairman of the board and now I'm emeritus chairman. And is that something that anyone can join? You know, if any, a woman in the audience wants to get involved, can they join it? Um, 
it's not, we don't join Vital Voices. Vital Voices provides um, technical assistance to women who are emerging leaders around the world. Um, Vital Voices provides grants through the State Department to gender-based violence programs around the world. Vital Voices helps women prepare themselves for leadership positions in, in um, civic life. We used to... <laughs> We used to use the word political. We can't use that anymore. You know, we, we learned very quickly that that was not a word, even though we are involved in that kind of thing. So you don't, it's not a membership organization. You don't join, but you can become involved um, in regional councils around, actually around the world, or you can become involved by supporting um, events that Vital Voices has, etc., um, or by supporting the women. Um, you know, you can just go on the website and see all the incredible women, and each one of them could use support. You've personally represented leaders of more than a dozen countries on issues ranging from economic crisis to nation building and trade expansion. How do you gain the trust of a country's leader to the point where they choose you to represent their nations at such critical times, especially when they may not even know who you are? Mm. You don't, you're not hired unless they know who you are. You know, it, it really is. It comes through a relationship in, in every instance. Um, I can't imagine that any leader would hire someone to represent them unless they knew them really well and trusted them. You know, so you get to know them. And actually, the way it started, I mean, Egypt is my first client. And the way it started for me was being on the board of the Center for Democracy and working in democracy initiatives around the world and getting to know world leaders. And then as they ran for office or as they were involved in office, you know, they they came to me for, for various um, for, for various um, reasons to help them. Um, but it was always, the relationship was always there first. Maybe as a follow-up to that, from your perspective, what are the key factors that contribute to building trust with others? Well, my mantra is always, you know, listen, 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 no matter what. Um, and so I, I think I'm a really good listener. I, I That's the best advice I can always give people is to learn to learn to listen first and I got this advice actually um, in an interesting way when right after I started my business and I had a chance to pitch a very big client it was seven up and I was pitching against big um, uh, agencies uh, and I had a friend who at that time was the number one salesman for IBM and he said to me, I, I told him I was going the next day to make this pitch. And he said, well, just pitch me and let me hear you. Hear you. So I started off, blah, blah, blah. And he goes like, stop, stop. He said, here's my advice. Listen 80% of the time and talk 20% of the time in that order. He said, you'll get the sale every time. So I did. And I did. We got the, we got the business. And I never forgot it. Never forgot it. Well, it's like the old saying, God gave us two ears and one mouth and keep it closed and listen. Right, exactly. So how should we handle situations where trust has been broken or lost? Can it be re rebuilt? And if so, how? Well, could you be a little more specific about that? Like what kind of a situation? Is it on an interpersonal basis? or It could have been personal or professional in terms of maybe they expected something from you and it wasn't delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think rebuilding trust is really hard. You have to kind of do it by 
being who you know the other person needs you to be, whatever whatever that whatever that situation is. But I think that it's so important when trust has been broken, if you want to restore trust, and you don't necessarily always want to do that or need to do that, but if you want to, then you need to start talking. There needs to be dialogue. And you need to start at the things that you believe in together, the things that you agree on, you know, and then move on to the things that are a little tougher to do. And forgiveness has to be part of that somewhere along the way. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about with guests like yourself. As you've worked with leaders in the public and private sectors globally, you've been an ardent proponent of the philosophy of servant leadership. What is servant leadership and who are some of the leaders you've worked with who exemplify servant leadership? Such a good question. Uh, Servant leadership is is so important and uh, we don't see a whole lot of it. I was um, thinking about this today because listening is a big um, important piece of servant leadership. Empathy is one. Stewardship is, you know, making it not about you, but about others. You know, that's really what servant leadership is about. And if you look at our Congress today, we don't have too many servant leaders. I'm kind of hard-pressed to think about. <laughs> you know, it could say a few, but the sad thing is that I can't say it a lot, you know, <laughs> about it. Um, and, you know, and, and actually, there, we, need, we need more corporate leaders, you know, who are servant leaders. Obviously, people who are in the nonprofit world, the, even a lot of military people are servant leaders, you know, et cetera. But um, it's, a, it's a, you know, and it's a concept, as you know, if you, if you're, if you talk about this a lot, not everybody's into this. Not everybody thinks that servant leadership is the way things should go. You know, I mean, a lot of people think that you should be more dictatorial, and you know, and in many circumstances, maybe you should be. You know, maybe that's what it is. But overall, you know, if you can put other people first, um, you're going to accomplish anything you would try to accomplish. You you really are, um, and it might and it might not be. It might not be right in certain situations. Um, I'm sure that people who are waging war in, you know, in Israel and Gaza right now are definitely aren't thinking about servant leadership. You know, um, but but later on, you know, it's a concept that really needs to be reintroduced. Again, couldn't agree with you more. So we've talked a lot about the great things you've done professionally. Let's talk about what some of those great things have done for you personally. You're in some very, very rare company, including King Charles III of the United Kingdom and former Pepsi CEO, Indra Nui, as a recipient of the Global Empowerment Humanitarian Award. How does an honor of that magnitude change the way people view or interact with you, and how do you maintain your perspective? Well, I don't think too many people know that. They might maybe more know it now that you just mentioned <laughs> <laughs> My friends thought it was cool, and my mom really loved it, but <laughs> You know, an award is an award is an award, you know. Um, it was great. It was a very fun night, but, you know, it's just an award. And it, and it actually, I received it for the work that I've done with women leaders and, you know, Vital Voices women and other women around the world. And so that was cool. You know, I was glad that could be recognized. Yeah. An award is an award is an award. Yeah. Among, among your other honors, among other awards... Yeah. You've also been recognized as one of the top 100 Irish Americans, one of the 50 Irish power women, 
one of the 100 outstanding international Irish business leaders and the Small Business Administration's National Woman Business Owner of the Year and National Woman Business Advocate. Now, this might be like asking a parent to pick their favorite child, but, but is there one of those honors you're most proud of and what it means to you? No. I Not knew that was all. the answer. Not at all. No, all great. Thank you very much. I'm very appreciative, but no, it doesn't define me. Oh, I, I have to have you back now. It's just fantastic stuff. So, Susan, we always like to close on a positive note, and I'd like you to take us to the close by looking back on all of your travel your international relationships and the work you've done and share with us what you're most proud of and what you hope or know will be your most positive impact and what we can do as individuals to build upon what you've done to create a better world. Oh my goodness gracious. No pressure. That's a big question. <laughs> um, I'm too young to think about what I'm most proud of <laughs> because I hope that's yet to come. Uh, but I mean, I'm really proud of the success of women who are, you know, who nobody would know about, but, you know, that I've helped in some way and they've, they've gone on to do really, you know, important things, you know. Um, so I, I, that's just too hard to answer, Chris. Um, I'm proud of surviving. I'm, prou I'm proud of, you know, pushing through when it was really tough to do because at the time that I was really starting out, this, you know, women were really having to work hard and but you know what I'm less proud of is the fact that we have so much farther to go you know I just you just hate to see that but I'm just grateful I'm really grateful I've just I've had a wonderful life full of opportunity I'm really glad that I moved to Washington DC because I got all kinds of opportunities I might not have gotten in other places um, and I'm glad that my parents just told me I could do it or whatever I wanted to do because I have so maybe to paraphrase your immediate response the best is yet to come. I hope so. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Susan Davis, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a real pleasure and an honor. Oh, it's just, it was really great fun, Chris. I'll talk to you anytime. Thank you. I appreciate you for that. Thank me. you. All right. Bye. Thank, have a good day. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure and on X, formerly known as Twitter at chrismeek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.